Welcome to these Meditation and Philosophy podcasts. I'm Al McGee speaking to you from Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada. The philosopher Daniel N. Robinson tells the story of King Croesus, who was known for his great wealth. He was an ancient king, a Lydian king, who ruled for 24 years between 560 BC and 546 BC. And well, for centuries after the death of the king, a newly wealthy man was sometimes congratulated with the words, well, you've become as rich as Croesus. Well, Croesus may have amassed a great fortune, but problematically, it had all gone to his head. As Robinson puts it, he was all puffed up with his own wealth and power. So we learn that Croesus was, for example, proud of his lots of land, his houses, his slaves. He was proud of his fine clothes and the beautiful things he collected. Well, he was just thoroughly caught up in it all. And he would often declare that he was a comfortable, contented man. Like vainly, and perhaps stupidly, he would repeatedly announce to everybody, I'm the happiest man in the world. But, well, nevertheless, a certain uneasiness remained and became more pronounced whenever he paused just for a moment to consider the life of a man named Salone. Why? Well, Salone was his complete opposite, who lived a very different life and became known not for wealth, but for something very different, for wisdom. For centuries after the death of Salone, it was a matter of high praise to exclaim, well, well, you have become as wise as Salone. Well, these two very different men, it happens that they met each other. King Croesus had invited Salone over to his palace in an attempt to impress the wise man. So we read that Salome was shown around and beheld all the stately rooms, the fine carpets, the soft couches, the rich furniture, the great pictures, and all the books. He was shown splendid gardens, orchards, and stables. He was shown thousands of rare and beautiful things that Croesus had collected from all parts of the world. And then Daniel Robinson reconstructs the conversation between the two men. It starts off like this, Croesus saying to Solon, well, I'm so very, very happy to meet you. Like, you're, you're a wise man, etc., etc. Well, the king is trying to impress Salone with flattery, not only by his wealth. And then asks Salone, after all of this, who, by the way, would you say is the happiest of men? Like, who would you describe as the most fortunate of all human beings in your acquaintance? Nothing personal here, mind you. Just sort of tell me, here in this royal setting, well, who would you say is the most fortunate of people? Like, who would you say is the happiest of men? You know, un, you know in other words, isn't it obvious? Well, Salone's response is to mention somebody no one has ever heard of. And Croesus is obviously not happy with this response. He's unsettled. He wants to know, well, who is this? What's the identity of this person? Well, says Salone, well, he's just someone greatly admired by his people. Well, Croesus is frustrated and sheepishly asks, oh, well, all right, okay, well, who would you say is the second most fortunate man you've ever known? Well, it's apparent, surprise, surprise, that he's gotten nowhere with Salone. And I'd like to ask the question right away, since we're on this theme of the difference between two completely different ways of living life, like what stands out about you? Like, what do people know about you, your wealth or your wisdom? What have you been working on? What have you been building up over the years? Your wealth or your soul? Is it all been about acquiring things? What about what's been going on inside of you? 
In this regard, by the way, Jesus once asked the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet to forfeit his soul? Well, thinking back as I reflect on this theme, I was ordained to the ministry as a very young man. I was 23, maybe I was 24, you know, I can't quite remember. I was ordained at the First Baptist Church in Vancouver. At the ceremony, words from the prophet Jeremiah were read. If I say, said Jeremiah, I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Well, here's a reference to a level of conviction like a fire burning strong. The challenge ever since has been for me to remain in a state of fire-like conviction. And the question, therefore, is, is that inner fire still burning? Well, and I venture to say, thankfully, that the fire has not gone out. Spiritual fervor remains. But I'm also very aware of how easy it is to lose touch with the inner fire. How is it easy it is to forget about it. You, you wouldn't think you would if you've had strong conviction, but you hear time and time again of people losing the fire. As in Eric Balin's case, who lost it, but thankfully found it again. He began to do a meditation practice, and while in deep meditation, he saw himself, he was taken back to what he was like when he was five years old. And he says the experience was revelatory. It was a grace-filled moment of deep recollection. And then he thought back about his life, and he says that over the years, he'd fallen into living what he calls a fuzzy life, which is an unfocused life. But you know, eventually he couldn't stand that anymore. What was it that he longed to recover then in that five-year-old self that he saw in meditation? Well, he says what he saw was a face of that five-year-old that was shining with light and a corresponding sense of a brilliantly alive feeling. That's what was there in the little boy. As a little boy, he'd been in touch with something essential, something that he says, lay at the heart of who I am. And then he asks himself the question, how could I have ever forgotten this? And then says he forgot because of the various roles that had swallowed his higher self over the years. His subservience to these roles buried his sense of himself as a shining light. I mean, in other words, not untypically, he got caught up in this, got caught up in that, and lost touch with the inner fire. Well, coming out of that meditation experience, he then felt a renewed conviction to stay with the inner fire and again and again said over and over to himself, don't ever forget this, don't ever forget, don't ever forget. And so resolved never again to lose touch with that shining light and its world of wonder and possibility. It's as the meditation master Gurumai has said so powerfully, once you see the face of the truth, even for a second, you can never forget it. Of course, I've just said you can forget it, but maybe not for long, and maybe eventually you come back to it because it's just always there. In that brief moment, says Gurumai, the self fills your heart with its own essence, which is ambrosia. It fills your mind with its essence, which is knowledge, and your understanding of life is permanently altered. And so she goes on to say, we meditate to, to keep that fire burning, to experience this at all times, so that this brightness will illuminate our minds, our intellects, our hearts, and our entire being. 
She continues, as you start conserving energy in your body, and instead of misusing the energies of your body, or of your mind, and of your speech, you allow this fire to grow within you. Then, when you do speak, your words have power. When you think, your thoughts have power. Wherever you go, your presence has power. This, Gurumai says, is the fire of love, and says, the Lord is fire. Do not lose touch with this. Always stay absorbed in it. This fire has been awakened inside of you, so remain aware of it and allow this fire of grace to work through you and for you. Never, never leave the inner contemplation. Never, never leave the inner fire. Therefore, in light of this, the best we can do is, if we've forgotten, <laughs> if we've lost touch, is to, before it's too late, rekindle the inner fire. This is the highest wisdom to which nothing can compare.